0: I haven't always known what i've wanted to do but by a process of elimination i just feel like try as much as you can and then you know figure out what you like the most i always just encourage people that if, if you have an idea of something that's a bit different that you really want to do you've just got to give it a go and you've got to get over there and get in contact with these people and, and just offer your services really like volunteer do whatever it takes there's this famous american football coach his name's lou holtz and he has these three principles to life always do the right thing
1: I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned funtrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. CCA is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Welcome back, beautiful people, to the second episode we recorded over in the West during our quick visit to Perth. In case anyone has been waiting for an example of someone who didn't have to leave the law to find their yay, my dear friend Amy Barber is your woman. As you'll hear, her legal career would have been my dream career if business hadn't fallen into my lap, and I'm continually in awe of her resilience, open-mindedness, and sense of social justice. While she too started out in corporate law at the same firm as two-time CCA guest Samantha Gash, for whom we were both recently bridesmaids, Amy shifted quickly towards the realm of international and humanitarian law to build one of the coolest careers I've encountered. Amy's first step out of corporate was a dramatic one, into the United Nations as a prosecutor at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda after the genocide. From there, she has worked in East Timor, Cambodia and Liberia and developed a keen interest in military law in the process. On returning home to Australia to settle down with her husband and start a family, she has also joined the Army Reserves part-time as a legal officer and is now officially Captain Barber and works full-time as legal counsel for the Australian Red Cross, so also has some insights into the bushfire relief work the organisation has been doing. She is endlessly fascinating, and I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Barb's, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on the show, and thank you so much for having me in your beautiful home. We've got such a gorgeous view of Cottesloe Beach. Pretty spesh. Amy's uh, on a mission to get us to move west. And I'm actually kind of halfway there.
0: (laughs) These beaches are amazing. I moved west campaign. It's pretty amazing. It took me a long time to get back here. So, yeah, so happy to be home. Oh,
1: my gosh. Well, before we get into how you started here... The very first question I ask everyone is what the most down to earth thing is about them, particularly because when you hear of when you kind of meet people in the job they end up in now, it can seem very glossy, particularly you with the UN and working all over the world. So what's something really down to earth about you? Down to earth.
0: Oh, my gosh. So many things, I think one of the first things that comes to my mind is, well, I work in a prison once a week. So teaching <laughs> yoga, which is just, you know, completely out of my comfort zone. I'm just dealing with people from all different experiences. And so often they're just so, you know, frank and just say things that you're like, whoa, I wouldn't hear that anywhere else. Like yeah. <laughs> the other day, you know, this lady is, you know, warrior too. And I'm like, oh, your, your hips a little bit out of line. Like, let's see what we can do here. And she's like, oh, sorry, you know, I popped it out during some vigorous sex before I got sentenced. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? I'm just like, okay, like whatever, sure. go with the flow. Like, So anyway, that's a very humbling experience, and I can talk a bit more about that later if you want. But just the idea of like working in the criminal justice system and then being back, you know, in a prison and trying to work with women that have, you know, and men that have been on really interesting journeys. But the whole concept behind teaching yoga is really just to practice mindfulness and Mm -hmm. body awareness. And, we know, we've just seen some amazing changes within the people in the class, even just simply as like, you know, their sleep and, um, you know, just their moods and all that kind of stuff. So that's something that's probably down to earth. The other funny thing is... I think of is I've just had so many random part-time jobs like we all have (laughs) like during uni but one of my most embarrassing ones was I was a toilet attendant stop it how have I I never heard this sorry where me and my friend got the gig to go to basically fancy parties and to stand in a toilet and like, hand out the hand towels and little barchy chocolates and like sanitary napkins or whatever they need. And we just had to wear a black uniform with an apron and stand in the toilets so at these like fancy parties. So, whatever. And everything's, you know, off, off limits.
1: Oh my God, I never knew that. I can't actually imagine you doing that. But that's
0: amazing. Yeah, honestly, so many random jobs growing up.
1: So. I think that's just almost the perfect summary of you, though, is how even not just part-time jobs, but even your actual jobs. You've done so many amazing, random, cool things. <laughs> and that's what I love about you is you're very just willing to give anything a go, like pretty much anything, including teaching yoga in prison, which is, you know, <laughs> not your conventional position to do, but amazing. And definitely want to hear more about that as we proceed. But the first section is called WayTA, and that's pretty much the journey of how you got to where you are now, but also showing how no one's pathway really is linear very few people know exactly where they're going and there's so many different twists and turns and steps along the way and you are such a perfect example of that so I thought we'd go all the way back to young Amy and kind of start from what you were like as a child Mm -hmm. and how each step progressed and and the different decisions and crossroads and things that you kind of hit and how you navigated your way to where you are so WA girl at heart, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Absolutely. I love how you ended up back here. <laughs> Tell us about what you were like at school, you were at Methodist Ladies College, and yes. then you did uni over
0: here before you moved to Melbourne. So what were you like and what did you think that you wanted to be? Yeah. Wow. Well, growing up in WA by the beach was just – it was a really idyllic childhood. And I grew up with my older brother. We used to fight like cats and dogs. Um, and a single mum who's just – like a plays a huge part in my life. I have an amazing mum who – gave us every opportunity she could. Single mum, you know, would go into debt to make sure that we could, you know, have every opportunity. So I feel so grateful to have um, had that kind of childhood with her. And really, it was just a beautiful upbringing. We would, you know, ride our bikes to school, we'd be going to the beach and I had a great bunch of friends. And I think that's played a really important role as I was growing up. High school for me was also, I really enjoyed it. I know that's not everyone's experience, but um, again, I just had a really solid bunch of mates and it was it was sort of okay or it was the norm to study hard but also to you know play sports and um, be active and social and do music and all those kinds of things so i think we all subconsciously sort of pushed each other to work hard in school and something i probably haven't mentioned is i was actually a bit of a muso so that was something that my mum had got me into at a young age because she was also played the piano but i was one of those kids started when i was five playing the piano and violin and um i think that was also really interesting too because having the that kind of discipline and having that sort of side of the brain that I was always interested in like that creative side was also something that sort of helped later in life so yeah loved music loved sport being you know outdoors and all of that kind of stuff and had a great bunch of friends and my first the first job I ever wanted was actually to be a marine biologist. Did you know I didn't know. Totally surprised. <laughs> I literally thought I was a dolphin until I was about five. I was still am um, just ocean obsessed, you know, whether it's just being by the ocean or in the ocean, swimming, all that kind of stuff. So didn't you want to like marry a dolphin or was it <laughs> was it that you wanted to be a dolphin? I think it was everything. <laughs> I legit thought it was okay to have a swimming pool and have pet dolphins as well. So cool. Yeah, it's all doable. I
1: mean it's still you know it's <laughs> still possible.
0: <laughs> but then I think I realized a bit more well, first First of all, I get terrible seasickness, which just sucks. I'm still in denial about it because I still love to do, you know, whatever I can with boats and things. But I didn't love all the other like science stuff which you have to study to be marine biologist. That's a small problem.
1: Yeah, it's kind of inconvenient.
0: So put that aside, and then I sort of thought about whether I might music might be something I pursue after high school. But you know, the field, if you want to take, you know, be a professional musician is you're either sort of a concert pianist or you're a music teacher, and I thought, oh well. We'll sort of see, I could come back to that maybe down the track. But then I always had a strong interest in social justice, and that was something that I think sort of came out in my childhood. Well my mum certainly raised us to be very independent and try she always tried to make sure we could see the world as much as we can and like I said we'd go on you know she'd take us a goal was to take us overseas once a year and you know she worked so hard to be able to give us that kind of luxury Um, but we would go to really unusual places Um, you know like I remember one year we went to Bahrain because my uncle was living over there or Hong Kong or a lot of Southeast Asia and things and She always encouraged us to meet local people and, you know, enjoy local experiences and Always made us, like pushed us to be independent. So, one thing that I always remember is you know, if we were at a restaurant and we wanted like a glass of water or something, we would always have to ask the waiter, you know, even since we're really young, like we had to approach people and have that kind of interaction. So, definitely always had this spark of working overseas and particularly in developing communities. And I really enjoyed advocacy as well. Um, And I'm sure that started when I used to fight a lot with my brother. (laughs) And he reminds me that. We used to ring mom, who was always working late and we'd be on the phone like, he did this and she did this. And then one day I decided I got out the old tape recorder and I used to actually, I'd provoke him and I'd like push him to a point where he's about to yell at me and then I would start recording. So it would just look oh like my God, so he was sneaky. still on, oh, no, I no. And then he was always like, oh, I knew you'd be a lawyer. Like there's your evidence kind of thing. So there was definitely that part of me that was really interested in languages and international relations and, um social justice and and causes like that from growing up. So I decided to do law um, and arts at UWA after high school. Yeah, I think it was probably, I've got to say, like my, my overall experience of uni was I... Would study, but I also had this sort of newfound freedom where I was working a lot as well. So I was one of those girls that was always doing like online lectures and would have like three part time jobs and it'd be nannying and teaching the piano on the side <laughs> and, you know, working at a video store and all sorts of random things. So I don't know if I was the best student. I certainly wasn't the smartest student and I certainly wasn't getting a ducks or anything, but I, was, I would sort of push myself towards the end of exams and try and get sort of okay marks. But I think a lot of people that go through law school, you get this feeling in sort of second or third year uni where there's a real push for you to decide early on what you want to do, because that presents itself in the form of clerkships, which is for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically like an internship or work experience, um, which can often lead to your first grad job. And it was around this time too that I um, also sort of got the international bug and I decided that like, okay, well, you know, we've got these spare holidays. Um, You know, you get so many holidays when you're in uni. So if I wasn't traveling and backpacking with my friends, I thought, okay, well, why not sort of combine both interests and try and do some internships or work experience abroad. So that's really around about that time when the whole sort of international organizations idea sort of came to my mind like working in those organizations but I also wasn't sure that I wanted to shut the door on doing other kinds of legal jobs so um, that's when all that sort of started to emerge in second and third year uni that's so cool
1: so guys just as a little bit of background Amy is the person who has always been a couple of years ahead of me but also has been her career has pretty much unraveled in a way that is everything that I would have wanted to do with my law degree like I pretty much met her through our mutual friend Samantha who we were recently bridesmaids uh, for and who you've heard from before on the podcast twice now and I think the introduction was Amy and you are the same person pretty much but she's a couple <laughs> years ahead of you and you have to meet her because you will. You have all the same interests, uh, you're, you're just so similar and uh, she her career and the way that her, you know, she is using her law degree is everything that you will find interesting and exciting. (laughs) And it's pretty much remained that way since then. And if I hadn't, I always say, if I hadn't left business, you are my ultimate role model because everything that's happened since then uh, has been, I've been through all of these exact stages, just a couple Mm. of years behind you. And it's so interesting to look back and think how much we thought that was the be all and end all decision of our
0: lives, but to remember how
1: much has happened since then.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And
0: I guess that's a really important message. Just, just people that are in uni now, and you feel like your pathways are so limited, or you know, you you should be doing what the what everyone else is doing because you're getting certain grades. But just knowing that there is so many possibilities and so many ways to um, to use your skills. Um, so for me. The, the pathway or the thing that I did that probably people weren't doing so much at the time is, is I did decide to go and do these internships overseas. And I had to work really hard to save money to go and do that because you off, you know, you're, you're working for free essentially, and you're living in expensive cities. Um, but I got the opportunity, um, to, I was on exchange actually over in the UK um, doing an international law exchange, and I was chatting with my professor one day in class who was teaching the international law segment, and he was telling us about the Rwandan genocide. And I just remember being so captivated by what he was saying and like his own experiences, because he'd also been a prosecutor at some of the international tribunals, that I said to him later that night, because we were having sort of a dinner function after. I basically just said like, how can I be you? Like, you know, he just sparked something in me that I was like, whoa, like that would not even be work. You know, like that would just be an absolute fun really or so interesting, like such a joy sort of thing to be involved in. Just um, anyway, and he said, well, the only way really is to do an internship. And I said, oh, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to any of these great schools. You know, you're competing with people from all over the school, uh, from all over the world, sorry. And he said, well, look, How about this? You apply and I'll be a referee. And I was just like, okay, like still thought I had no chance. But, you know, six months later, I just get this email out of nowhere saying, yes, you know, that we'd like you to be an intern. Are you free? And I just jumped at the opportunity and just, I remember saying to mum like, I'm going to Tanzania. And I think I was like 20 at the time. And I had no idea what to expect. And i don 't think I was that daunted because by that point, I was just so drawn to the adventure and, and like the buzz was sort of thing was and the backpacking vibe <laughs> all of that kind of stuff was already in me so I just um, can 't imagine
1: a you that hadn 't been to Africa before like i can 't actually imagine that time where Amy pre all the adventures but um it's so cool to remember that there was a time when you hadn't yet explored that but I also hadn't I'd forgotten that you'd been to Rwanda before you ended up back there yeah
0: so I started off there as a 20 year old intern and I never forget getting on the plane and I had a layover in Hong Kong and that feeling when you're suddenly the minority and I'm talking like you know you're the only Aussie on the plane and everyone's, you know, going to some African destination and just being like, whoa, like what am I in for here? (laughs) I'm from Perth. Yeah, literally. (laughs) And I bought myself like a little room at the Backpackers because I didn't even know where I was going to be staying and it was just, you know, one thing led to another and it was just one of the best experiences I've ever had. So that sort of planted the seed. I got the chance to work on the – almost as like a judge's associate, so supporting the trial chamber to write judgement – And this was a military priest who um, was convicted ultimately of genocide um, in the 1994 Rwandan genocide, so in the trials. So being a part of that was just really fascinating and out of this world. And and that was really my first sort of dabble, I guess, with with, um, the international law sphere and organisations. Interesting that
1: you didn't go straight there though. What made you then come back and decide to try corporate? Mm -hmm.
0: Because that was three years. Definitely. So, yeah, I always wanted to finish my degree and that was really clear to me. So, that that was really the thing that was going to keep me back in Australia. And I think I still had three more years to go. But suddenly, I just had this idea of like, oh my gosh, like, as I said, like, I'm not the smartest person in the room. And suddenly, like, I just thought, oh, there's doors that could open in a different direction that just fascinate me. And I was just really drawn to. So, I then went and did another internship in Geneva at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and just had another fantastic experience working for the advisor on human trafficking and just getting myself into situations like I had to go to Russia and and do some work on a trafficked soldier and just situations again sort of being in my early 20s it's like wow like what an opportunity and what a privilege to you know to be in this seat so that that spark was definitely there. But then at the same time, you come back and you have that tugging at you of like, you know, everyone else is going to the big commercial firms and doing clerkships or working in community legal centres or, you know, doing other things. And my philosophy has often been, I haven't always known what I've wanted to do, but I've my, by a process of elimination, I just feel like trying as much as you can and then you know figure out what you like the most so mm. I had that in my mind and I thought okay well if I had the opportunity I would try and do a corporate law clerkship as well um, so working at one of the commercial firms so I came back and had the opportunity to do that which I enjoyed I did worked at two different um, corporate firms and then also had a chance to double at the Department of Public Prosecutions and do another internship but then ultimately, you have to make a decision when you finish uni about um, what you're going to do. And I ended up working for um, or choosing to do a grad a few years at Baker & McKenzie, which is one of the international firms, and which was really against the grain of you know all these other opportunities abroad. But I had also had a really great mentor at the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, who had said to me that... You can always come back to international work or human rights or crime, but it's really hard to go back to corporate. So we said like if you can get a foundation in a, in a corporate firm, you'll never regret that training and just that mm-hmm. solid foundation in your home jurisdiction, so you know working in your local courts. so I had that in the back of my mind um, so
1: fascinating. I, mm-hmm. I kind of do that same thing of I make decisions based on what is the once in a lifetime opportunity and what is the thing that's always going to be there mm-hmm. and if you can't go back to one thing then that's probably the thing that you should tick off Mm -hmm. so I didn't know you made the decision
0: yeah and I also like the fact that it was an international firm and there was other sort of you know other opportunities that came with that and looking back I am just so grateful I made that decision at the time and often it's so much about the people Mm -hmm. you know the work can be long and hard and You know, it's not always the most exciting work, but far out. Some of the people that I met in that firm are still some of my closest friends, including Mm -hmm. Samantha Gash, who we've just spoken about. So fantastic, very rewarding experience. But I definitely had that moment after a couple of years and working in a few of their offices where I just thought, this isn't my passion and this is not my favourite thing to do every day, (laughs) you know? Everyone goes, there's a point in a lot of sort of general associates' careers where they kind of get itchy feet. It's a common phenomenon, unfortunately. Retention rates are high. But
1: especially if you had already worked in those massive international organisations, like people get itchy feet when they haven't seen that, but if you've Mm. already been in the throes of like a human trafficking court or like a Rwandan genocide court... I can't even imagine then going back into a corporate office and finding the minutia of like mm, you know financial law. contracts, <laughs> yeah, much. being interesting or or yeah. engaging enough for your appetite at the
0: time. Definitely. So I had and I just sort of knew that that was a possibility. And the longer I sort of left it, I, I was worried that that door might close. So, but again, had I not had that foundation in a, in a good firm and had that really good training, I just don't know. You know, if if this if my pathway would have been the same anyway after a few years I get a I get an email sort of out of the blue from a colleague who said you know we're cl- the courts closing the Rwandan genocide courts closing we're hiring urgently like three junior prosecutors are you interested and I was like yes of course So I jumped at the opportunity but even from there it was a six-month process because you know these are huge bureaucratic organizations and there was a number of screening tests and all sorts of interviews to get through and medical tests and all all of that before I actually found myself on a plane and heading to Arusha in northern Tanzania to work over there full time as a prosecutor. So, and Sarah, <laughs> this is where you have a little bit of an interlude I because know. one of my favourite stories about Sarah and Nick is they came to Africa for the first time to do some work over in Rwanda, and I thought, oh, this would be great. You know, they can come stay with me. It'll be like a friendly face when they arrive, and they can stay for a night <laughs> or so before they go off on their own adventures and i get the call from you and you're at nairobi airport just landed like 24 hour flight and the whole terminal is on fire
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is such a classic
0: like east african story especially my
1: first time to africa like i was i was like a pretty vanilla traveler back then like now i'm much more adventurous but at the time i was a lot more conservative like i Not done a heap of developing country kind of travel. And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out of my comfort (laughs) zone and come to Africa, like, throw anything at me. And (laughs) and we land, and then there's this huge like explosion noise, and then the glass from the terminal like hits the plane because we we, like we (laughs) were in war or something. (laughs) Literally, I was like, I actually thought it was a terrorist attack because (laughs) bombs were exploding inside the terminal and all the glass was like like exploding outwards, and because our plane was taxiing in to join the um the bit where you what? What's that thing called? Where you walk the, um, you know, the, like the gate thing? Yeah, yeah, that thing. The yeah, the connector thing. We were like taxiing towards it, and then suddenly, as the glass from the wall started hitting it, they were like, "Pull back, pull back!" Terrifying. And we were like, we were already all standing up to get off the plane," and they were like, "Sit back down." And we're all kind of. Like, this is was, no manual for this it event. event. It just like, like what to so, do? and then suddenly, like. Behind one of the planes, you could see the like terminal suddenly exploded into flames, and there's like smoke and
0: fire, and I was like, "Where oh am I?" Uh, and then you did the bus and cross yeah. the borders, and it was like, a night anyway." Yeah, so it was, it was, one was an of my ordeal. Fascinating visitors in that time, but um, that prepared me for the whole rest of Africa. Though. I was like, <laughs> "This is how it works," yeah. you know. You just TIA, like this is Seriously. Africa. You just got to deal with it. But we're we did end
1: it. up making it to Amy's beautiful <laughs> abode with a very interesting cat. Um, oh gosh. gosh! And you gave us a full tour of the yeah. court, which was at that point I hadn't. I had just started work. It was my first year of full time law, and you were definitely such a strong example for me of what you can do with it not you know outside the corporate space mm. and, and in the international law realm and we both have like a very strong love of languages and um, I think it was so interesting to see you in action like working in the courts and working on these massive international cases and being so fulfilled by that but also showing that it's possible i don't think people think those things are possible because why would a little australian lawyer Mm. kind of get a position as a prosecutor and a massive un tribunal yeah but you have and it was just so fascinating to see
0: it was such a privilege to be involved with and especially because some of our colleagues were rwandan or from the drc or had been in the region during the time and for them it was personal and you know, no one can ever quite explain, like, what that experience would have been like for for the victims of the genocide. So it it was really special to be able to kind of give voice to the victims and people often say, oh, you know, it was so long ago, like, what difference does this all really make now? And... I mean, I I think the most important thing is it really is often like symbolic justice. So people know that they weren't forgotten. And whilst the world didn't do enough at the time to act, at least now that, you know, they know that the world stands with them. And Rwanda is an amazing case study too for post-conflict development. And it's one of the now Mm. safest countries in Africa. Um, you know, they've got more women in parliament than any other country in the world. So they've just come so far. So yeah, it's amazing to see. But interestingly, I remember in one of my um, last visits to Rwanda, because we'd have to fly between the countries to um, collect evidence and and speak to witnesses and everything. But I remember saying to someone like, what for you, because you've kind of got to understand now in Rwanda that also they don't distinguish between Hutu and Tutsi, which was the ethnic divide, which ultimately led to the conflict. So they're not actually allowed to use those words. No. Um, and but everyone seems to live so harmoniously and you're like how is this possible like how could you literally live next to someone who killed a member of your family member like it's just inconceivable so I said do you think the trials really have had an impact like what is what does that mean to you and they said to be honest I think the biggest factor that has helped us with our reconciliation and moving forward as a country is religion and I said, you know, that that's really interesting. And it, it's for this particular lady, it was her Christian faith and forgiveness and all of that. So I just thought, you know, that in tandem with hopefully what the trials have done, um, you know, definitely made some small difference in in giving these people, um, you know, a sense of normalcy again. So, yeah, fascinating experience. And I spent almost two years there in the end working um, for the prosecution, not without its own challenges. <laughs> also, I mean, like living in Africa, like yeah. it's not,
1: it's not easy it's no not an easy place to, to live
0: no I mean gosh like had an attempted carjacking woke up one night and I lived next to a market and the whole market was on fire and had a few traffic you know a few collisions in my car or lots of pickpocketing incidences all that kind of stuff but um overall you know when you look back you just think about the safari which is literally on your doorstep you know you can drive and be in a national park or mount mm-hmm. Kilimanjaro or zanzibar and just the incredible landscape so no i i couldn't recommend it more highly to everyone to to get over to east africa and and visit if you can
1: i just i yeah i loved coming to visit you i loved seeing that you had found something that kind of ignited you so much, despite how many challenges day-to-day kind of get thrown at you in your lifestyle and in also the scale of what you're doing and how different it is for anything that you had kind of trained for. Like it just sem- it seemed so out of the realm at the time, but then when I came to visit, I was like, mm. you've just fallen – you just fell into it so well mm. and then continued in that role. I mean, you were in the field for what, like another – Liberia was straight after that or Cambodia Cambodia, was
0: next but I think that's a really interesting point too Sarah is because people just think these kinds of opportunities are not attainable or sort of so out of reach or so far out of this world that it's not possible but you know if 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 I can do it anyone can do it and I always just encourage people that if if you have an idea of something that's a bit different that you really want to do you've just got to and you've just got to give it a go and you've got to get over there and get in contact with these people and, and just offer your services really, like volunteer, do whatever it takes because mm. if you're so enthusiastic about it that they're going to see that passion and, um, you know, hopefully give you that opportunity if they don't just keep trying. <laughs>
1: Persistence will get you a long Persistence way. Persistence will. But I also think one of the things I love about having watched your career from, you know, that from corporate to, to then in the field is that, you've got to also listen to what really lights you up and be okay if it doesn't really look the way that you think it might because Mm -hmm. I found it really hard to live in Africa like I I think that I personally I would love the stimulation and the passion piece of the work but I think I would find the day-to-day very difficult Uh, and so that's why you know what I'm doing now doesn't involve me living in you know developing countries even though I could do it for stints I think I would find it really hard whereas you kind of take to that work and that scale and that level of work as if it's where Mm. you were always meant to be and I think it's interesting that if we either of us had followed what other people were telling us to do we wouldn't necessarily have ended up where we wanted to end up Mm. but you just find what What environment works for you and what makes you thrive and you just go with it Mm. even if it's like in africa you know (laughs) like it's like i'm sure you didn't expect that you would end up living there or living abroad for
0: the un for so so long yeah and for sure and you are sort of taking my mind back to to the day-to-day and like i said it definitely had its challenges and the biggest challenge for me was being far from family and friends you know i ended up Mm. being about five years that i was away um and being in a long-distance relationship and Mm. let me tell you like that is not easy either But I think I just... Was very lucky to have quite a strong sense of purpose, and you know, it just gave me such a rush that that work. And I just had such an understanding partner, now husband, um, who was similarly <laughs> was similarly working overseas a lot for his own role. So mm-hmm. we had that understanding, and we both just said to ourselves, like, we're in our twenties, let's just do all this crazy stuff now. The worst thing I could have done is held him back, and vice versa, and said, you know, like, I just want you at home, so come home together and cook dinners. And, and whatever and, and that's fine because some that people some people really value that at that point in their life but for me these were just opportunities that um I couldn't say no to so yeah after Lib- uh, after uh, Tanzania I packed my bags and headed to Cambodia and got to work <laughs> which was great because I was a lot closer to home too for, to visiting family but um then I worked they, they have the Khmer Rouge trials um in Phnom Penh in Cambodia there. So I worked for the Supreme Court Chamber, which is like the Appeal Chamber. Um, so your job as, as almost like an associate on the Supreme Court Chamber is to help the judges come to their final decisions and help them with their drafting of judgments and, and sitting in court and listening to evidence and, and ruling on interim motions and decisions and things like that. So... Again, like really diverse workplace. It's the UN, so everyone from every member state is represented. We this particular setup of the Cambodian court was it's called a hybrid UN court model. So we had fifty percent of the staff had to be Cambodian. I which, didn't
1: know that. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. So that, there's sort of pros and cons to each approach. But the I guess the the reason for that is it's a Cambodian experience, and Cambodian people should be involved. Of course, all of that. But the only other thing is then it takes away a little bit from like the neutrality of, of the UN international system. So you know you're appointing current prosecutors and judges with the within Cambodia. So there's just more politics at play mm. basically with that model. Um, it's a little bit less removed. But the one the best thing in my view about the Cambodian court is the victims have a voice so it's based on a civil law tradition which is unlike the common law in Australia so victims have lawyers and victims are represented and can get um reparations and things like that they can't get individual cash payments but more symbolic gestures so you know they might Mm. build a statue or they had they declared a public holiday you know for victims and things like that so each day they would bus the victims and their families in from all over Cambodia and you know people that had never even been to Phnom Penh and they would sit and watch the trial Every day, so again, like sometimes it's more about that symbolic kind of nature of, of what these trials are doing because these events, you know, this is in the seventies. Pol Pot and um, his brothers, as he termed them, um, so their two fellows on trial right now are still in their nineties. So you know, um, it's a I'm long just, time since.
1: Are they in their nineties now? Yeah,
0: Gosh. they're in wheelchairs and things.
1: So yeah, I'm just beaming at Amy right now guys by the way because this is literally if I yeah in my legal brain this was my dream job and still is something that I can imagine I would have tried to follow in her footsteps if business hadn't kind of intervened (laughs) I I know but I literally have always looked up to Amy so much because this this kind of work is what fascinates me so much and I spent, you know, months and months before we went to Rwanda just researching because I find this kind of work so interesting and I can imagine that actually being in like a player in how things are unraveling for the world is so impactful. And I think one of the big questions I have is after Cambodia you then went on to Liberia and and spent time there and then have come back and been able to come back to Australia and have kind of the more settled life with a baby on the way and so much more exciting (laughs) stuff. But one of the books that I think you might have told me about that I was reading in Rwanda is Emergency Sex, which is oh, God. <laughs> the coolest book ever. I've got nothing to do with sex. I don't even know why it's called that. But it's based on the journals of three UN workers in different war zones like Somalia, Haiti, Rwanda, Cambodia, a couple of other places. And I think it was banned in the UN bookshop because yeah. it was a bit controversial. Seriously. But it's it's <laughs> <laughs> what I like so much about it. I'm sure there's a lot of creative license, but I I like so much that it investigates the idea that people who work in war zones get this level of adrenaline and a sense of the impact that they're creating on a global level that makes it very hard to go back to your normal life after that because mm. you've gone from like living in tin sheds and being on bomb drills and like having alarms go off and you and that. That the idea of emergency sex is that when like you 're about to die, like you might just grab someone and try and procreate because you 're in the level of adrenaline that just doesn 't happen yeah. anywhere else. How do you go from knowing that your work is like impactful on an international scale that 's part of history mm. to then coming back I think the first place you came back home to was Adelaide mm. to work in the office of the OPP, which is the Office of Public Prosecutions, which is still doing really impactful work in the criminal justice system, but on a very different, stable country, you know, like mm. a, just a different stage altogether. Yeah. How do you transition from that? And then would you say that kind of your UN job was your dream job at the time, but then that's changed or that you still miss being able to do that? And how do you find the same level of satisfaction Mm. now that you've transitioned back home?
0: Very good question.
1: (laughs) I've actually just wanted to ask you this for ages. No,
0: and the the truth is it's not easy. And I don't know if you ever really, like it's always in the back of your mind, Mm. but it's a catch 22 because- it, it was my dream job like you know my last posting in Liberia I was working in a peacekeeping mission was literally getting helicoptered into fields to you know teach local judges or prosecutors you know certain like the new criminal provisions of the criminal code or something like that and when you just you're working and you can just see like the tangible impact and stuff you're having on the ground but all the while whilst you're doing what you love and you're so consumed in it you don't you know with your loved ones and that's really hard so you're always thinking about home when you're over there and then when you come back you're thinking and you're s- about over there <laughs> correct yeah so you you think like or every like imagine just coming home and being you know with your with your boyfriend or husband and all your favorite people but you just you can't often recreate the buzz of the um you know of the work you've been doing and I think it is a bit of addiction, addiction, like it's high risk and it's high reward. And then any other job is always going to be compared to that. Yeah. So I think I'm still moving through that space a lot, but ultimately you know, I'd said to my husband, like, we'd been apart for so long and, and just this crazy schedule of, like, meeting up all around the world and doing things. But I always said, okay, when you get back to Australia and you get your next posting, then that's where we'll meet. So that, that was Adelaide of all places. Yeah, like, you know, no. no, like, prior experience living in Adelaide. And it, and it was a transition and I – yeah I I don't know I don't think you ever really kill the kill the buzz but you just sort of you just shift and you and you can still really enjoy what you're doing and you just appreciate all those moments that you've missed you know like Mm. you could be seeing something so incredible and so beautiful but ultimately if you're not with the people you love like you know it's just not quite the same so I think I saw you maybe in the middle of the
1: Liberia period Mm. and you were just like i have only eaten cardboard like there is no vegetables available to me in liberia and your face was just
0: like good food (laughs) yeah liberia was intense because it was the end of ebola um and the uh, the peacekeeping mission was meant to be shutting down but it couldn't because the whole country was just paralyzed and even just trying to get the word out that ebola was a thing and it wasn't witchcraft and that Mm. you know you couldn't even bury your loved ones who had a because that was the most common way of transferring the um, virus yeah so uh yeah that was a difficult time and then yeah just just the most basic of things they had the most devastating civil war over there it's been about 13 years so a lot of the agriculture and things was destroyed so just basic farming and stuff like a lot of the neighboring countries they haven't recovered as well in liberia and and just getting like access to fruit and vegetables and things like that like yeah we we have these little un stores the military guys set up and it's just like frozen meals so yeah it was you, i reckon there was a part of me that's like i should actually just have no interest in eating because there's just nothing that you could that's, not tickle my fancy yeah. with anything like <laughs> yeah, i'm you just know, not keen even like the chocolate that someone would import is like you know the milk's different and it's been like frozen and whatever <laughs> um and you know yeah. like i've got malaria over there and there was definitely ups and downs and I, I was employed on a civilian basis basically like monday to friday kind of role but i was working heavily with the military and seconded police over there who work um, on different rosters so they're they're basically posted to work seven days a week. So we really just didn't stop. And like, because also your family and friends aren't there. So yeah, you, you've just, got no incentive. That is your work, is, is your life, so is, your, is everything, is your social life as well. So whilst we were doing some fascinating things, like the burnout is real over there. And mm. yeah, it's just everything is to the extreme. But um,
1: that's exactly why I found the book so fascinating is because it looks at that once you adapt your body and your brain and your expectations to extreme environments, like, all these people would narrowly avoid death. They'd get back to New York or London or wherever they were and they'd just be like, oh, I can't mm. do this. I need chaos to be able to, like, focus myself. And I have found it so interesting to watch you move home. But I think because you've always had such strong family roots and needed to be near the ocean and mm. had a really healthy lifestyle that it's been easier to kind of appreciate the, the exchange. And you do have family and you do have friends and, and those you know those guys are really isolated. But it's interesting that you've come back and still found ways to kind of work in that military, international law focus. Like you've done mm. your graduate certificate in military law. Yep, in the process. Um, Amy's also joined the Army Reserves.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's a captain. Oh, gosh. So there was, there was actually a critical moment. So when I was in Liberia, part of what we were doing was um, working in like uh, it's the laws of armed conflict basically. So even in a war zone, there should be basic standards that should be adhered to uh, and principles of international law. Um, and we would work with the militaries to draft various rules of engagement and things like that. So this body of law is called international humanitarian law and I remember saying to a colleague, you know, I'm going back to Australia, God knows what I'm going to do, like, you know, is this a lot more limited back there in terms of the international law space? And he said, well, if you want to do this kind of work, you could either work for the Red Cross or you could join the army. So I always kept that in the <laughs> back of my mind. And that's, and I was like, okay, that's my go-to plan. <laughs> and I'm now you are doing both. I can yeah, make that work. So <laughs> initially I also like love courtroom advocacy and stuff. So I did a year stint at the DPP in Adelaide whilst my husband was posted there. And then the goal was ultimately to get back to the West in Perth um, for his dream job. So That was when it sort of sprung with me. I was like, okay, I'm going to make this next move. So I applied to the Army Reserves to be a legal officer um, because it's one of the few positions in Australia where you actually get trained in that operations law and targeting law. Um, You may sort of not think about it, but... You know, if we're in um, Syria and we're doing airstri- airstrikes, then there's certain laws and procedures and applications and things that you, you have a lawyer and basically in the command room who green lights or red lights a decision too. So it's that sort of area of law that, that fascinated me. So I thought, okay, well, great. I'm going to join the army and give that a go. <laughs> and that was quite a process. Captain
1: Amy in her uniform is so funny. Captain
0: Barber. So I'm really enjoying that experience and then um, I also had the opportunity to join the Red Cross legal team which Sarah and I as we record this has just been the most crazy what two weeks now beginning of January with Mm. the bushfire crisis in Australia and I think the dust is settling a little bit on the immediate aftermath of the fires that were in early January but it has just been madness madness but also so goosebump tingling you know heartwarming to see australians like coming together and the international community and people just supporting each other and red cross has really been at the front line in terms of like immediate relief so just basic provisions and setting up shelters evacuation mm-hmm. centers relief centers providing food and water even just like they have volunteers out there just you know giving people hugs and psychological first day giving kids trauma teddies these little teddies that older women have knitted and things like that so seeing that response but also just knowing that it's going to be like such a it's a three-year recovery program basically because just these entire communities have been wiped out not to mention you know lives have been lost in homes and everything else and a huge amount of wildlife so yeah that, so that's what we're sort of grappling with right now at Red Cross um and again it's been a privilege to be in part of that process in the legal team and you can't imagine how many legal issues come up <laughs> in, in times of crisis as well so
1: and like with not very much time to actually sort through the issues the way that you probably would no. like to from a legal perspective <laughs> I think a lot of legalities and like regulations and stuff just get overlooked because people <laughs> are like shit we like, need emergency. to act now <laughs> yeah absolutely I love that nothing has really changed on the like emergency action front for Captain Barber. she's <laughs> <laughs> you're still just at the think of it. Oh my gosh. But amazing, amazing to see the progression of your career and the ways that you've been able to keep molding it to match the things that bring you joy. But in different ways. And now, you know, with a little bubble along the way, it's it's so good. I'm so happy that you're not in Africa
0: anymore. Like <laughs> I my mum is too. And then, <laughs> yeah.
1: And so nice to see you guys settled here back in Perth, you know, where you, where you grew up and where your heart is. Like, Amy is that girl that when we were away for um, Sammy's hands, you know, we were in Victoria, so it was not as warm as it is over west and we were all just kind of like on the couch with the heater on and Amy was like, I'm going to get in the ocean. Like this is the kind of gal that we've got. She just jumped in like the minus two degrees water. Oh, we had to be in the, in the water. I love the water, all <laughs> things ocean. Yeah. So the next section is called NATA, which is we've kind of covered, but it's pretty much just all the things along the way that have gotten in the way of your joy, mm-hmm. whether it be self-doubt or confidence in pitching for jobs or, or in being, oh. you know, completely out of your comfort zone and in physical danger not just like actual you know just risks of walking mm-hmm. away from corporate or, or those kinds of things or burnout and managing your time being such an active mind and um, managing relationships and you know anything really that's mm-hmm. gotten in your way what, what do you, would you say have been your biggest challenges? Oh, we've talked the, the
0: first thing that springs to mind is obviously just being apart so you know being by yourself in these extreme sort of situations and battling time zones and you know not being even with people from australia you know just you take it for granted just people that sort of speak your own language but one's professional challenge i think is sort of worth noting and again being on like in an international organization probably exemplifies this and particularly more in a military context but there's definitely been times in my career where i don't know if it's a combination of like my age or my gender or for whatever reason you know you're sitting in a room essentially of 40 to 50 year old blokes you know in in important senior positions and You know, I've had some really difficult conversations and I've had times where people are like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You know, you've no experience. And, you know, one time it comes to mind where I'm just, I was giving it, I was given a direction to give some guys who were just so much more senior than me in military roles uh, as the legal advisor and they just weren't going to take it. And, but my job was to get that direction out. Like that was, I had Mm. to do it. And it was just like, oh yeah, I just was doing everything (laughs) I can not to cry in the moment. And I did, I left the room and I was crying in the toilet and just stuff that I was saying, you know, about you're a young woman, what would you know? Like stuff like that. So I've definitely like Mm. had those kinds of moments. I've been in offices with, I remember when I was an intern and, they would. there was a communal phone for all four office, uh, desks within the office to share and they would put the phone on my desk and say well you're, you're, the, you're the woman like you should be answering the phone like <laughs> things like that and also again you often with people who don't speak English as their first language or you know they just come from completely different cultural settings where maybe women you know at that age or for whatever reason just don't have similar sort of roles so there's definitely been that aspect i think a little bit of maybe gender deafness or something Mm. in in some of these roles um you definitely
1: take on positions that aren't you know necessarily the easiest (laughs) roles for you to take (laughs) on and not necessarily the the smoothest of environments but I think that's kind
0: of why you're amazing Mm because you really forge a path in
1: everything that you do thanks yeah and (laughs) honestly
0: there's so many times where I don't know what I'm doing and I just pretend and it's definitely a fake it till you make it situation (laughs) like
1: well it doesn't look like that from the outside I'm always just like Amy's off saving the world somewhere (laughs) knows exactly what she's doing (laughs) and the last section is called play TA which is I I think something that you will probably find as hard as I did in the separation between your productive, successful, achieving self and the you separate to all of that stuff, which I think for a very long time, I didn't even have that identity. It was just me achieving Mm. stuff and having output. And I couldn't kind of find my value when I wasn't being productive with my time. But I had to learn, you know, through some very bad flaring of anxiety but also physical burnout and all sorts of different things that like you can't just live a life where you work and you die like there's just really no point in (laughs) it's not I mean it's great if you're fulfilled from your work and that that probably makes it even harder to cultivate an identity outside of it but I think it's so important for us to all make time for the things that just bring us joy but have no necessary learning or you know they're not going to necessarily propel you forward in your career or they're not you know they're mm. just a waste of time but they're something that that's fun so what do you do to play
0: <laughs> i'm also <laughs> late to this game <laughs> <laughs> like it's we're very similar oh, in that like can never watch a movie twice like, so like you know ultimate um, waste of time <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> <laughs> but i also being pregnant i'm five months pregnant now and you also respect your body in a whole nother way and you do need to slow down and for mm. me there's a few outlets but one is swimming like that for me is just so meditative like more than any other kind of movement but any kind of movement in general whether even if you're just walking around the block like that's something for me that really helps um music i'm I'm loving my podcast at the moment i'm a huge truth crime buff (laughs) Oh, me too. Much to the horror of my husband, he's like, "You just deal with enough heavy stuff at work. Like, can't you just, you know, watch something light and fun?" And I'm like, "Just take me to like the latest cold case, you know?" I'm trying to figure this out. Nick's like, "What is
1: wrong with you? You (laughs) literally go to sleep to serial killers and rapists. Like, what's wrong with you?" I'm like, "I don't know." It's you know what it is. I think it's the human psychology that fascinates me, which is the same as why I found the genocide study so interesting. Is because Mm. it's it's something about like the social. I don't know, like the way our brains work and how far removed that is Yeah. how... I don't know, I find it so it's fascinating. It's an element
0: of people's stories too, mm. you know. Everyone has a story and mm. it's just relatable and all that. I'm listening to Claremont of them at the moment. Have oh you listened to it? So this is really embarrassing. but So I grew up in that era, you know, when yeah. these, there were these... It's Claremont, like next door. Yeah, ab- abductions and, and it was a serial killer on the loose. And <laughs> I've got a group of friends who were, we're all just obsessed with the trial and we actually go to court and watch it. <gasps> I should touch you. Stop it. Like, we're like I the weirdos They the love back to that come. come to watch.
1: Because like we're just so fascinated. And yeah.
0: there's also professional interest, but it's also just like, oh, this is so much part of our youth. Just like, what's going to happen here? Yeah. But anyway, it, wait, watch this space so that that trial is is on this year. Um, but the other one, there yeah, that has come up in the last two weeks, which is hilarious, is we've just discovered UNO. The card oh. game, which is, like, something you play in primary school, but we just took it down the coast with some friends recently and, yeah, like, loved that as well. So That's the best.
1: A that, bunch of random things. I kind of think thing. that, like,
0: play TA 101 involves board
1: games. Like, when you've never actually – because mm. I started at zero. Like, when you've never let yourself – play mm-hmm. or when you've stopped letting yourself play since childhood it takes ages to figure out what you enjoy which mm-hmm. is weird because mm-hmm. it's like shouldn't you just automatically know what you like mm-hmm. but I'd spent so long having no hobbies that I had to start from zero and I kind of am like okay well if I start with board games like maybe that will lead
0: me to something else because yeah, so true I think the other interesting question to ask yourself is like if money was no object and you could do anything with your time mm-hmm. endlessly what would you do every day and I thought about that and for me it would be some combination of like you know going for a swim and practicing yoga and some meditation practice but still working still making a contribution but
1: I think you would probably be doing exactly what you're doing (laughs) like I think you'd probably do it for some variation (laughs) (laughs) what actually I forgot to ask you this earlier what is the role you were mentioning before we started recording that the Red Cross just I mean in emergency situations their disaster relief and recovery efforts are so important and I mean we've, Sam and Nick have raised I think three quarters of a million dollars oh my gosh! Yeah. and the Red Cross was immediately the first place it made sense to put those funds mm. towards but you guys do everything I mean what else do you do and as a legal officer mm. what do you do sorry I've just gone backwards but no, I forgot no, no. to kind it's of cry okay. a little bit
0: more um, well first of all Red Cross is a humanitarian organisation. So in, in times like this, like this is what the, these sort of organisations are set up to do. So if you like, you know, that's, that's, their, that's their main go-to sort of piece of work. But the other thing that's really, I guess, unique about Red Cross is it's a national response. And right now what we're seeing in Australia is um, is fires through multiple states. So you need like a more holistic kind of response. Mm. And then they also also have that experience collaborating with all the other NGOs, but also government and, and, you know, all the other agencies that are on the ground responding. So that's why, you know, they're sort of at the forefront of, of the efforts right now. But as a legal officer, there, there's that, aspect of work too where they have a mandate where they work on international humanitarian law issues um, but it's a very similar the role to like an in-house council in any organisation so even though it's an NGO and it's a humanitarian organisation it's still dealing with you know issues with its staff so we have thousands of volunteers and employees across the country. Um, you know, property law or tax law, or charity law, there's fundraising laws in every mm. state. So for every campaign, you know, you, you're looking at contractual issues and um, vetting, marketing and like mm. and things like that, that and products that are going out to the public. But... In terms of the other areas of work of Red Cross, it's it's really diverse. So you know they're doing everything from um, working in soup kitchens to with Indigenous groups to with young people to with young parents. Um, yeah it's just the, the list is just endless like to be honest when I first started working there I'd just be like oh what And program like I'd never heard of before <laughs> yeah. you know we do a lot of work with vulnerable people so elderly people you know tell, we have a service called telecross where you're just calling elderly people who are isolated once a week just to just to have a yarn just to touch base and mm. um you know or providing transport and things to, to the people um and then there's office there's the disaster relief um piece of work too so it's it's very broad yeah what a job it's Mm. kind of perfect for you Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i'm loving it such a wonderful team
1: (laughs) and sorry back to the you that's separate to your legal officer at the red cross (laughs) (laughs) uh so uno board games (laughs) and with parenthood coming up what do you kind of what's your vibe for the next you know
0: year or so Mm -hmm. so baby's due in June Yeah, I've just convinced my husband that I'm going to have an Amy week before, so I'm going to... Absolutely, (laughs) baby moon. I'm thinking of doing some yoga, um, prison yoga training. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. oh <my> God, <laughs> it's very specific are. teacher training that you need to do um working with you know in, in that area um but anyway so baby due june and i'm gonna take at least six months off i think oh, yeah gosh. but i mean it's a first know. time in like your whole life <laughs> yeah and it's it's really i don't really know how i'm gonna go with that to be honest yeah when, but the idea of just my sole job is like caring and just loving someone else, like that's just so special. Oh, and my husband amazing. is just so clucky; like he just cannot wait for this. So, oh my god, It's I gonna be plenty so of like much. walking around the block, probably. So come join. Yeah, like but, um, <laughs> baby swims. When can you get the baby in the water? I have looked into that.
1: <laughs> I know you. I know you have.
0: That does not surprise yeah, I me. Take him to little swimming classes. <gasps> Um, I know, so cute. I've seen some little baby wetsuits too. I'm like, oh, that. (laughs) You've
1: got to get them one of those little donuts that they can just do in the bath. Yeah, they're so cute. All right, second last question. Three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. So the dolphin thing I think is a really key key factor. There are lots (laughs) of dolphin toys, (laughs) Um, Uh, lots of dolphin references at the wedding in the speeches. Yeah
0: three random things okay like pet peeves or party tricks oh pet that. peeves is definitely rudeness and it's like just people being rude generally and especially when you're overseas or in a developing country or something and you know people are like rude to wait staff and all of that that's just yeah it gets me going so kindness always what's another quirky fact oh one you may not know is i actually love to give feedback and this is just more positive wow. feedback than uh, constructive feedback is often hard to give but I just love if if I just get like an excellent experience I love just telling that person and also trying to like pay it forward so just to give you an example like we were at the Apple store yesterday and it's just (laughs) chaos in there and then I just had this guy who assisted me, who was just so passionate about his job and so just full of knowledge. And it was just the best experience. So I thanked him, but then I went, I, f- I found his manager. It took me a few minutes, but I just really wanted to give that feedback forward. And I, I'm the person that always fills out like surveys and like feedback forms in hotels oh and God, like stuff you. like that. Super oh, random.
1: People would appreciate that so much because no one else does that. Yeah, I just like to pay it forward where I can. Oh my God. That's so, sp- I've never noticed that. Yeah. But actually now you say it, I'm like, Oh yeah, you're a feedback giver. That's really, (laughs)
0: sweet (laughs) Um, the other one which is like I don't know if you know either is there's some fruits I just hate
1: I did know this I can't remember what they are though
0: mainly citrus fruits and mainly because I'm scarred from primary school when one of my dear (laughs) friends had it one of those full-blown braces head brace things going on and got all the like pulpy stuff stuck in her head brace and I'm still dealing with it <laughs> <laughs> and I could never just sit there and like eat an orange or something oh my gosh wow you no. definitely like some if, if my husband <laughs> wanted to
1: I'd be like you can just do that next door around the corner <laughs>
0: that bad but I have another friend who was in primary school with me and she's the same so we're both equally scarred also oh, and, so and we're I think not you alive. need
1: to go back and like have a little conversation in your mind with the the <laughs> original lady and, like, let it go somehow. Oh,
0: okay. Or some <laughs> hypnosis or something. Yeah. Come to terms with it. <laughs>
1: oh, God. And very last question since I love quotes so much. What's your favourite quote?
0: Quote? Mm. I love always take the stairs. I think that's just a great metaphor Ooh. for life, you know. Often things worth the, worth getting to are hard work. Um, that's such a you quote. <laughs> <laughs> always take what? the stairs. <laughs> Another one which is actually above our door is a quote is, um, please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this space which is shamelessly stole from oprah and she has it above all of, in her all of her offices which is basically like victor frankl in man's search for meaning which is my favorite book talks a lot about this but it's this idea that you know people can take everything away from you um but they can never take away how you feel or the energy you bring or how, yeah so i love that one um one more thing that springs to mind and this is a bit of a parenthood one but i was chatting with my brother-in-law about it recently and there's this famous american football coach his name's lou holtz and he has these three principles to life and i thought oh this would be really cool like having three golden rules at home or like things you come back Mm -hmm. to as a mom like teaching your kids and those principles are always do the right thing show people you care and always do your best with the time allotted I just thought they really three simple, really nice life sort of like, you know, goals that you can come back to. So I, I like that.
1: I feel like that summarizes kind of everything you'd ever need to ever <laughs> yeah. do. Like everything yeah. would work out if you just did those three things. Yeah. So oh, yeah we might amazing. bring that to the house or adapt it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much,
0: Amy. This was amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for creating this beautiful platform. I think
1: oh, it's yeah, just so nice hearing people's stories and learning from them. I love it so much. And mm. I've wanted to tell your story for so long. Oh, thank you for the oh, honor. I'm so excited. <laughs> I leave inspired after every time I see Amy. Isn't she just fascinating? You might have heard a few trucks and things in the background that you'll have to excuse. We left the window open to let the Cottesloe Beach breeze come in. I've decided to continue recording on location as much as possible instead of in a studio and kind of love the background noises along the way. So I hope you guys don't mind. If you have any questions for Amy, please let me know or join the Seize the A Facebook community to get a discussion going. The link is in the episode notes. We have all of the fun in that group. As always, I'd love you to share the A and tag us so we know what you think and if you're enjoying the show. And please take a minute to leave a review. It takes hardly any time, but means the world to us and helps the neighborhood continue to grow. The lineup for the next few weeks is super exciting. I cannot wait to share our upcoming guests. Hope you're having an amazing day and are seizing your yay.